0: Someone once said that expectation is the root of all heartache. And I think we've all had those seasons in life and those experiences in life, which would probably lead us to agree. That those moments when you have such a high expectation of something, when you're looking forward to something so much, and then when you get to that point, it just doesn't live up to it. Back in May of this year, King Charles was crowned king of England. I don't know if you guys were into the whole, you know, British monarchy situation, but what was interesting about King Charles is when he was coronated, he was 73 years old, the oldest to ever be crowned king. His mom, Queen Elizabeth, was only 25 when she became queen. So imagine King Charles' entire life, he is looking forward to this, expecting this, waiting for this moment when he's going to become king of England. And his mom, who he no doubt loved so much, remained queen for for a very long time. So he becomes king finally at 73. just probably not what he was expecting. So I think we all kind of experience this. I think it's part of the human condition, isn't it? This, this up and down valley and peak of expectation and disappointment. And it almost feels like a roller coaster. And you know, why is that? You know, why do we continually ride this roller coaster, this wave of high expectations and excitement and then letdown or disappointment? And I wonder, could it be because at some point or another we got a glimpse of greatness? We, we a taste of greatness, we were able to experience greatness at some level, and we tried to recapture it, but we just can't. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was in 1990, I remember I was about nine, and I would sit by the radio waiting for Ice Ice Baby to come back on the radio. And then they would play, and I'd immediately call the radio station, hey, can you play Ice Ice Baby? He said, we gotta wait a few minutes before we, we play it again. So I got the album to the extreme. It had so many good songs on it. You guys probably didn't know this, but it went seven times platinum. That was a big deal, right? Did you guys wait for this? I don't know if you guys, anybody else, love Vanilla Ice like I did. But then the second album came out. It was kind of a flop. It was was kind of disappointing. And my mom would never let me do the little shave thing on the side. You know, that that would have been cool. You know, he had five more albums and none of them ever went even gold. Such high expectations. I'm not going to say it's a disappointment because he had a sweet HGTV show. But it just didn't live up to what we hoped. How about this? If you're a Raiders fan, which thankfully nobody in this room is, Jamarcus Russell was, was, somebody is, was drafted number one at LSU. Such high expectations. This was the guy that was going to lead him to the next Super Bowl. And within a couple years, he was out of the league. Raider fans had great expectations Seasons of disappointment. How about all of the little girls in the world that watched Parent Trap or Mean Girls that were so excited for this, the future movies of Lindsay Lohan that were going to come out and change their lives only to see the way her career turned out. Although Christmas movie last year wasn't too bad. That came out. But isn't this just life? There's this roller coaster of expectations and disappointment, and a lot of it is because we expect greatness. We have a taste of greatness. We get to sense some of it. That's why we love athletes and musicians and movie stars, but then they don't live up to it. And that same thing happens to our own lives. When we have these expectations in our lives for a new season that's coming or a new situation that's coming, and it doesn't live up to those expectations, we fall into the pit of disappointment. There's an article in the Harvard Business Review this week that I read, and it was talking about how we tend to drift into two camps when it comes to disappointment. The first camp is we tend to lower our expectations. And some of you might think, yeah, that's me. That's where I fall. You lower your expectations because you don't want to be disappointed, ultimately. But here's what happens. You end up becoming less of a risk taker. You end up becoming less of someone who's adventurous and then you find out that your life ends up being pretty mediocre and it ends up being pretty unfulfilled. There's another camp and you might find yourself in this one is when you become an overachiever. You say, I've been disappointed because of my expectations in the past. I'm going to try to overachieve and I'm going to take things into my own hands and I'm going to work really hard. The problem is, often in that case, we set the bar of our expectations too high and we can't reach it, and we end up trying to do it ourselves and getting really down and living that life of disappointment as well. Where do you fall in those camps? Maybe some of us are in both. And here's the problem with that. If you've experienced this, that it can have drastic effects on your life. It can impact your relationships because either you don't try for relationships or you try too hard and you can't find one that meets your expectations. Or in your career, you have these expectations for your job, and you come in and it's not right, so you end up leaving a good job for another job that just doesn't work out right. It could really work its way out into all kinds of areas in our lives. And one area that I think we've all seen and experienced this is in our relationship with God. We have these expectations of God. We have these things we read in Scripture and that we see or that we hear other people experience, but yet we don't experience those ourselves We've got really high expectations and we expect God to move in a situation or to answer a prayer or to, to give us some revelation or some wisdom in a situation and maybe we don't experience it like we expected and it ends up disappointing us. And so then we drift We end up lowering our expectations of God to a low point where we don't expect anything of him other than to to kind of maybe help answer a prayer here and there, or we raise our own expectations of ourselves above God and we say, well, God, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to. And I'm going to take matters in my own hands. God, if you're not going to fix this, I'm going to fix it. And we end up not meeting that expectation too. But I wonder, as we think about expectations and disappointments and this roller coaster of life, I wonder... Could it be that the reason we are on this roller coaster is that our expectations of God are actually too low? You might say, well, how could that be? I've ex- expected God to do something. He didn't do it. So I need to lower my expectations. I don't need to raise them. You see, could that be the problem? Have we moved to a point where we see our expectations of God as God's kind of... the? Uh, someone who just kind of hovers around and fixes the little problems in our life, but our big issues, the big things we deal with, well, those are mine. Those are the things that I've got to fix on my own. And and we almost limit Jesus to this, this, you know, tooth fairy kind of character who's gonna fix little things and give us little gifts instead of seeing him for true, who he truly is. So one of the challenges I want us to see today is I want us to ask, are expectations of God too low? Because I think what Jesus wants to do in your life is he doesn't want to just solve little problems or put periods at the end of sentences. He wants to completely revolutionize your life. And to do so, he needs to change the way that you truly see him. We've been in a series the last couple of weeks called Come and See, where we're looking at the the first uh, interactions that Jesus had with his disciples, and I think Jesus really challenges this, this view of how we see him, because I think I think we as as people too often settle for the, the lowest um, the lowest good. We we too often settle for the easiest path, and, and I love how C.S. Lewis brings this up and challenges how we see God. Notice this: what C.S. Lewis says about expectations. He says it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so Jesus is going to really challenge the disciples, this group of people that he meets in John chapter 1, who have been waiting for God to do something, but their expectations were too low. And he would, over the course of his life, really help them to raise those expectations to see who he truly is, to see what God really has for him or for them. So in John 1, if you've been with us, we've seen that Jesus meets this group of people who he would call to be his disciples. He meets Andrew and Peter, he meets Philip and Nathaniel. And last week we, we saw that Nathaniel doubted when he saw he met Jesus, and that Jesus pushed back. And then Jesus opens his eyes to something greater. It, it, let's catch back up where we were in John chapter 1, verse 46. If you have your Bibles, grab those and, and flip there. John chapter 1, verse 46 says this. So, you know, he tells Nathaniel, um, Nathaniel says to Philip, Well, nothing can good can come out of Nazareth. And so Philip says to him, Come and see. And so then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him. And he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says to Jesus, Well, how how do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so last week we talked about this kind of exchange that Jesus, he, he, he says to, to Nathanael something that meant something to Nathanael. That, that made sense, this idea of him being someone of no deceit and being under the fig tree that connected with Nathanael. And Nathaniel was like, wow, you really are who Philip said you were. You really are who Andrew said you were, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And then I, I love what Jesus says. N- notice what Jesus says in the next verse. He says to Nathanael, he says, uh, "Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe?" He's like, "You think that's cool? Just wait. <laughs> Just wait till you're, you're gonna you're gonna see." He says, "You will see greater things than these." So, what's Jesus talking about? What's this great thing? Because that's pretty cool, right? Jesus tells something about Nathaniel that he knew to be true, and he immediately was like, "Wow, you are who." Everybody says you are. But then he says, well, just wait. You haven't seen anything yet. What's he referring to? Well, thankfully, we don't have to go very far. Just a couple of verses, and we're gonna see that he's referring to miracles, that Jesus is gonna do miracles that's gonna reveal who he is. Now, it is interesting. When you start to talk about miracles, there's all kinds of different reactions. Like, you know, just go to work, go to school, and ask the people around you if they believe in miracles, and you're gonna get all kinds of stark responses. You're gonna get... Some people who say, well, aren't those just fables? Aren't those just kids' bedtime stories? You're going to have others that firmly believe they've experienced miracles in their own lives. You know, it is really interesting. If you drive down one of the major roads in Denver, you'll probably come across the church. You'll come across... Um, a tarot card reading place. You'll come across a shop that sells crystals. You'll come across a psychic and some other weird stuff if you look hard enough. Denver is an interesting place. But there is this draw towards the supernatural. Pew Research did a study It said 80% of people in America at some level believe in miracles. And at 66, Barnes did a study 66% of people agree that god can supernaturally heal so wherever now there's obviously questions and there's skepticism and around all this but there, there's a belief there's a consensus among people that there is something to the spiritual or the supernatural there is something to miracles and what's interesting as we look at this book of john John's biography of the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus uh, performs seven miracles. How many? Seven in the book of John. If you take all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that there's 37 miracles recorded. But John gives us seven. But there's this really fun verse at the very end where John says, actually, the pages of the books of the world cannot contain all that Jesus did. So Jesus did a probably a lot more than just these seven, but there's a reason John gives us the seven. John wants to use these seven miracles to kind of give us a uh, direction. Uh, He wants to help us to to, to see something about Jesus. And, And so here's the question I wanna ask you guys. Would you ponder this? Is the reason John gives us the seven miracles to help us to believe in the existence of God? Or is it to teach us something Specific about Jesus? And I think the answer to answer that, we have to really put ourselves in the context of when John wrote this, this book, because I, I believe that John gives them to us to help shape our expectations of Jesus. You know, if you step back into John's shoes, John would have written this book, this biography of Jesus, to a group of people who had the understanding that God existed. If you would have met a Jew in the first century, there was no question about atheism or agnosticism. It was a belief that God existed. And so they believed that God existed, and they were looking forward to to when God was going to fix the problem because they understood that they lived in a broken world that was destroyed by sin. And they believed in the promise that God would send someone to rescue them from their oppressors and to fix all the problems. And they had this expectation of God and what he would look like and be like when he came. Jesus came to change their expectations. And I think in a beautiful way, these miracles, they aren't given to us to prove that God exists. These miracles are given to us to prove who Jesus really is. They're given to us to demonstrate the the character and what Jesus was truly all about. And so when, when you see miracles in the Bible, it's not to prove the existence, it's to prove the legitimacy of the one performing them. And so that's what I want to look at here for a moment today. Back in my uh, corporate days working in the office, our, we had a fax machine. Anybody remember fax machines? We used to get this fax. And, it, you know, really when we got this fax, I felt, very, um, I felt very honored that the king of Nigeria would message me. Anybody else ever get an email from the king of Nigeria? Well, the king in Nigeria used to send us a fax, and he used to say that he was in jail, but he needed a way to move all of his money to America. And if you would allow him to put it in your bank account, he would give you a cut. And uh, I wanted to. As much as I wanted to, I decided against it, thankfully. But, you know, you, you can hear a lot of things. You can see a lot of things. You can hear people say a lot of things. But how do you know if it's true? One of the interesting things with AI is all of the deep fake videos that are coming out, especially if you're on TikTok. Here's a picture of Tom Cruise. I don't know if you guys have seen any of these Tom Cruise deep fake videos. They're really good. Tom Cruise playing the guitar, Tom Cruise playing golf, Tom Cruise doing all these things. So the guy on the left, that's not Tom Cruise. He just looks a lot like Tom Cruise, and because of AI, he can make his face look like Tom Cruise and change his voice to be Tom Cruise. And so that video of Tom Cruise singing Kumbaya on the guitar probably wasn't him. So there is this reality that you, you know, we have to investigate whether something someone says is true or not. And when we look at the miracles of Jesus, it's an, invite, it's an invitation to come and see. It's an invitation to see, okay, what is John telling us about what Jesus did? Because we believe these miracles are absolutely true. These aren't some these aren't some symbol, although there is symbolic value to them, we believe these things actually occurred. This isn't just some made-up story, some bedtime story. These are real things that Jesus did, but there's a reason for, and it's an invica- invitation to see who Jesus really is. Now, I want you to notice something. If you have your Bibles open, John chapter 2, verse 11, it, it talks about his first miracle that he did, and it says this. It says that, that during his, his first miracle, that this was a sign, He says that in the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And it manifested his glory in his disciples. What did they do, church? They believed in him. So you're going to notice that every one of the miracles in the book of John, not necessarily Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John, are referred to as signs. So what a lot of scholars will talk about is how the book of John, these miracles are road signs. My seminary professor, Dr. Tomlinson, our favorite seminary professor, would call them, would call them road signs. And, and so what I, what I want to do here is I want to see how John takes us on this journey of looking at the road signs. Who knows what this is? If you're like under 28, you have no clue. <laughs> Anybody ever you still use a map? Anybody in here? There's a few of you guys that still use maps. You guys are old school for sure. I mean, we've just gotten so used to this. We, Courtney and I were in New England last summer, and um, every time I'd hooked my phone up to the rental car, it would reset the map, and so we actually had to look at road signs, and we got lost. We got a crazy loss in New Hampshire. Uh, you, know, you're all, you know that when you're on the hill, you're like trying to find, like that helps, right? Like two inches is gonna help get a cell signal, but nonetheless, for those of you guys that are used to looking at these maps, by the way, 7 99 at Barnes & Noble's now for a map. So... Um, they tell you where to go, what to look for, what to see, and so what I want to do is I want to look at the book of John and these miracles like a map, like a road like a road sign, from one miracle to the other, teaching us something about Jesus. And and I'm going to do this real quick because we don't have time to look at all seven. So I've got one slide here for us to follow along. But if you have your Bibles, this will be fun. You guys can flip through them. Look at John chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to see this is the very next verse after Jesus tells Andrew that he's going to see greater things. Two verses later, he is in Cana. Somebody say Cana. Cano's a village not far from Nazareth where he grew up, not far from um, Bethsaida where Nathaniel and John and James and those guys live. And he goes to a wedding and his mom's at that wedding and his mom tells Jesus that they ran out of wine, which would be hugely embarrassing. And so his mom basically says, Mary says to Jesus, hey, they ran out of wine. And and so had these six stones, and so Jesus turns water into wine, and he, he, he takes that, and the head waiter tastes it and goes, man, this is the best wine I've ever had. And he goes, it's crazy you saved the good wine for the last. And so in this miracle, it's teaching us something, and it's, it's that Jesus makes all things new. It shows that Jesus has control over nature, that Jesus can take one substance and change it into another. And what is interesting about this, this was kind of Jesus' big like, introduction to the world, his hello world party with this miracle. And so he starts here, this idea that, that if, you, if you guys have read the Old Testament and um, the book of Ezekiel talks about that God takes hearts of stone and he turns them into hearts of flesh. And here's these stone water jars that Jesus turns into wine. It's a picture of life. And so Jesus is doing this amazing miracle at the moment, but to his disciples, to Nathaniel, and to all the other people like us, Jesus is revealing that he makes things new. He can take dead things and turn them into live things. He can take water and he can take turn it into wine. And this was the first sign in John. Was it the first sign, miracle that Jesus did? We don't know, but John gives it to us first. And then Go back to that last slide here. John chapter four, we see that Jesus is approached by an official whose son is dying. And the official comes to Jesus and he says, my son is dying. And Jesus, um, Jesus tells him that his son is going to be healed. And it says the man believed Jesus. And then so the man is going back. The man lives about 20 miles from where Jesus met him. The man goes back and he meets his servant on the way who says, hey, yesterday your son was healed. And he goes, well, about what time? And they, and they figured out it was the exact moment that Jesus said, your son will be healed. And so here's the picture that Jesus, he has the power to heal. And not just by putting hands on somebody, Jesus heals this boy 20 miles away. So he's revealing to his disciples here that Jesus doesn't just make things new. Jesus has power to heal, but it's not limited to where he's at. Jesus, something about Jesus is something bigger. This guy has the ability to do something greater. John 5, we see the next miracle, that Jesus, he goes to the pool of Bethesda. Somebody say Bethesda, uh, or the pool of Siloam. It was right there in Jerusalem, and it was a place where a lot of handicapped and, and, and different people with disabilities would lay around, and there was this belief that the angels would bubble the water, and that the, if you got in the water, the first one to get in the water would be miraculously healed. So there's a man who's been there for more than 30 years, just living there, trying to get into the water, but he couldn't get into the water. His legs didn't, didn't allow him to. And so Jesus comes and walks over to him, and he tells him, he says, pick up your mat and walk. And so immediately, the man just completely transformed. Jesus heals him, completely transformed. His legs have strength, and he walks. It's on a Sabbath, a Saturday, which was a no-no in those days, to pick up your mat. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And so Jesus gets into this, some trouble from this, and Jesus meets the man later, and he says, hey, you need to repent, and you need to turn to God. And so we see in this miracle that Jesus is healing again, but in this case, he's showing this man that you don't be, you're not healed by any superstitious, miraculous thing. Healing comes from God and God alone. And so you see in this case that Jesus heals the physical and the spiritual. He healed this man. He told him to repent from his sin and to turn to God, and that would be the healing he needed for his soul. So now Jesus is revealing power and healing and authority. You guys seeing how this works? You guys seeing the road signs as you go? They're taking them as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem to give his life. He's showing his disciples something more and more about him. Now, we see in John 6, Jesus is, feeds the 5,000. You guys remember this story? Anybody remember this one? Jesus is out on the hillside and these huge crowds to him. They say up to 20,000 people, 5,000 men, add women and children, about 20,000, many people think. And Jesus and his disciples are healing. They're, they're casting out demons. They're talking to people. But this is the only miracle that John writes down from that day. There's no doubt miracle after miracle happening. But John only writes this one down from that moment. And it's Jesus turning a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, some some Hawaiian rolls and some fish sticks, into enough food to feed 20,000 people. And the idea here is that Jesus is the source. Jesus will go on later to say that, that when the people come after him again and ask him to do that again and to do it for him every day, he comes to say that I'm the bread of life. And Jesus is telling us here, in this case, that, that he is the provider of the physical and the spiritual sustenance. Okay, so, so recognize this. Jesus doesn't just make things new. We take a right turn. We get to the next miracle where Jesus is now healing in space and time. And then we take another turn, and now Jesus is showing us that he has the, the, the ability to, to heal us both physically and spiritually. And that leads us to the place where we see Jesus as the one who gives us physical and spiritual sustenance, right? You guys get that? You guys see that now? Jesus is the provider of what we need. That night, Jesus sends his disciples across the lake to another town, and then Jesus goes to pray. And in the middle of the night, Jesus decides he's going to walk on the water to his disciples. And so that's the next miracle we see in John 6, 21. 16 through 21. Jesus is walking on the water. The disciples see it. They think he's a ghost. And they realize that it's Jesus. And we see in another gospel that Peter actually steps on the water to Jesus. So what does it mean that Jesus is walking on the water? It's a a, a proof that Jesus is the one who controls the natural world. There's another time Mark tells us that Jesus stopped the wind and and the waves. So there's a miracle here. That not does, Jesus doesn't just give you what you need spiritually and physically. Jesus actually has control over the natural world. So these road signs are all taking us somewhere. John nine. There's this really interesting exchange where Jesus is uh, talking with his disciples, and his disciples see a man who has been blind since birth, and they say, Jesus, what did this man do, or what did his parents do to cause him to be blind? And Jesus said, He didn't. Isn't sin that causes blindness? He said, but I want you to see that that this man being blind, you're gonna see the glory of God when he's healed. And so Jesus is telling us that that, you know, there's we live in a broken world. We're born into a broken world, but I'm gonna heal this man so you can see something beautiful about about me. And we see that Jesus heals this man of his his sight. And what was crazy is that prior to this moment, nobody had, there's been not on record anywhere of anybody ever been, been born blind and been given their sight. First time. And it's the first time in the Bible that we see this. And this man is given his sight for the first time. And Jesus tells, you know, Jesus, it's kind of gross. He spits in some mud and puts it on his eyes. And he tells the other guy to go wash um, at, um, at the uh, pool that's, that's called Scent. And so he goes and washes. And he can see, and he's praising God and all this stuff. And it starts this crazy fight with the Pharisees. But it's the proof here that Jesus gives us true sight. This is, Jesus is saying, I don't just give you what you need. I'm going to help you see. I'm going to help you see the world. If you go back and read that story, there's this fight about the Sabbath and the synagogue and all this stuff. And so Jesus is helping to reveal that when you follow me, it's not about rule keeping anymore. It's not about trying to climb uh, the, the steps to being right with God. Instead, it's about a relationship. And so Jesus gives us the true sight to see life and the world, Jesus is continually revealing more and more. At this point, the disciples, if they would have truly understood this, they would have recognized all of these beautiful realities about Jesus. But there was one more that still needed to be done, and that was John chapter 11, when Jesus' his good friend Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies, and so Jesus goes four days later. At, at that point, four days later, there was a Jewish lore that existed that the soul could remain around the body for three days. So if somebody died within three days, that person would then could come back to life. There was this kind of Jewish lore that existed. And so Jesus waits for four days for a reason. Because by the fourth day, that Jewish lore couldn't be in effect. So Jesus comes, and he walks up to Lazarus, his sisters, Mary and Martha, and they're all crying, and it says that Jesus cries. It shows his compassion that Jesus has for his people. And so Jesus goes to the tomb, and he says, roll the stone away. And Mary is like, Jesus, we don't want to do that. He's been in there four days. He stinks. Or as the King James says, he stinketh. Jesus is like, roll it away anyways. And he says, Lazarus, come on out of there. And Lazarus, looking like it's trunk or treat, walks out fully wrapped up and mummification cloths and everything, and he's alive. This makes the Pharisees so mad that they want to kill Jesus and Lazarus now. Talk about having your expectations messed up about who Jesus is. And so in this miracle, it shows us that Jesus has authority over life and death. So, I want you to notice Jesus starts with just water to wine, the last miracle in John that John tells us about, Jesus is literally raising people from the dead. That's quite the transition. But Jesus took us on that journey of seven miracles all along the way. And one of the cool things about numbers in the Bible is that when you see the number seven, it means something, and it means complete. It means whole. Somebody say whole. So when you see seven, there's a reason it's there. There's a reason John gave us seven. Could have given us a 100, but he gave us seven. And that's for a reason, because he wants to teach us that Jesus is the one that makes us whole, that makes us complete, that takes us, makes us new, that gives us life, that heals our wounds, that fulfills us spiritually and physically, that gives us the the sight to see, and it will eventually raise the dead. Isn't that cool? Seeing how they all come together. Okay, here's my homework for you guys, since I just did that so fast. Take a picture of that, or we'll send it out. Go home, read all these. It'll take like 10 minutes to read all these and, and read them because I think it's really cool to see how these miracles are like the road map that takes us from thinking, oh, this Jesus guy's cool, to seeing, whoa, <laughs> this is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. Anybody else? Midwest people, a few of you guys? In the Midwest, we gave people interesting directions to get places. If you guys are from the Midwest, you know this, right? I remember Courtney and I, when I was in seminary, What my first time ever preaching anywhere was for my buddy, my buddy Craig. And he basically, I said, well, how do I get there? And he said, well, there's really no spot on the map. We don't have a website. The church doesn't have anything on Google Maps. And the town it's in is not even on the map. So here's how you get there. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go. So it's like, drive to Chillicothe. If you guys are from Missouri, you guys might know where that's at. He said, take a right, go down, cross the train tracks, and you're gonna see a red rooster mailbox. Turn right at the red rooster mailbox. Take that mile down, take that down for about a mile, and then you're gonna see an old school bus. Take a left, and then when you get, take the fork in the road, which way do I take the fork? Oh, you'll know when you get there, and then you'll be to the church. And let's just say church started at 10, and I got there about 1040, right? <laughs> we got so lost out in that place. What I love about this book of John is that John doesn't tell us some crazy back, backwoods way to get somewhere. John gives us a map to find Jesus, to find out who Jesus truly is, to clearly show that Jesus is the, the person he says that he is, which I think is so cool. You know, because I think ultimately what he wants you to do is to learn to trust him. When he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this, he's trying to say, as you follow me, as you see me, you're going to learn to trust me. You know, as a dad, my kids trust me because I've delivered on my promises. Not all of them. I mess up all the time. But usually when I tell them I'm going to be there, I'm within 10 minutes of being there, right? School gets out. I might, you might be in the principal's office waiting for me to get there. But I'm going to get there. And, and over time, the kids learned to, to trust. These disciples, they learned to trust Jesus as they experienced these miracles, as they walked through this with Jesus. And their expectations went from being down here to being that he is the son of God, the Messiah, who is going to fix the problems of the world. And so I think what John wants us to do is he wants to see who Jesus truly is, you know, the world says Jesus is a wise man. Jesus is a moral teacher. John's trying to say, man, it's not who Jesus is. Was Jesus wise? Yes. Did Jesus teach us the morals of God? Yes. But who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And Jesus stepped into this world to reveal God to us. Look back at John 1, 51. He says this. He, after he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things. I, I love this. Pastor Mitch hit this verse a couple weeks ago. He says... To him, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. The word truly, truly, when it's translated like this, it means amen, amen. So he's like, amen, amen. You will see heaven heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, if you were here a few weeks back, Pastor Mitch talked about this. This, this picture is a throwback to the book of Genesis chapter 28 when there was a man named Jacob. Somebody say Jacob. So there's a man named Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, who leaves home to go find a wife after he deceived his dad. His brother hates him. It's time to go. His mom says, go back to my country and find a wife from my people. And on his way, he goes. And he stops at a place called Bethel. Somebody say Bethel. Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And so he stops here. And here's a picture of Bethel. I think, we have a, I think we have a picture of Bethel here. And so he stops here and, and he takes a rock and he lays his head down. You can see it's easy to find rocks in, in, in Bethel. So he, he takes a rock and he lays his head down and he's, he's, he's having this dream at night of a stairway to heaven or a ladder. And on this ladder are angels coming down and coming back up and coming down and coming back up. And it's just like this picture of that God's presence is near, that God is working in our lives. And then he has a conversation with God where God reaffirms his promises to to Jacob. And it's interesting when you think about that, Jesus pointing back to this moment saying, I'm now that ladder, I'm now that stairway. This week I was out looking at aspens. Anybody else leaf peeping right now? I was up at Loveland Pass, dropping down into Keystone to peep some leaps, and I saw this, and I was thinking about this sermon, so I took this picture, and uh, that stairway to the top, it's pretty, you can stop off and get some good views, and it made me think about life. You know, there's this thing that seems to exist in all of us. This idea that we all are, are working our way up the stairway to God. And that's what the problem was at the time that Jesus was alive. And I think that's the problem that a lot of people are living right now when it comes to their faith. We, we just feel like there is this stairway. We're always trying to climb the ladder to God. We're trying to do good things to God. We're trying to be good enough. Or maybe we're in a religious system that says we have to do these five things. Or you're part of a, a church that says if you do this, it's going to take you down the ladder. So you've got to keep working your way up. And so we're trying to climb the ladder to God and it's exhausting. And it wears you out. And you realize that you can never truly get there. That ladder that we try to climb doesn't take us to God. It doesn't take us to Jesus. The sin and brokenness of the world have shattered that ladder. You climb that ladder, you're going to get to a spot you can't go any higher. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus is saying to us in John 1:51 is that he doesn't expect us to climb the ladder to him. He climbed the ladder down to us. And in fact, he is the ladder, that he is the stairway and that he is the one that reveals God to us, that he is the one that takes us to God. It's a beautiful picture that we don't have to try to figure it out on our own, but all we have to do is truly understand who Jesus is, because he is saying that I came to you and the stairs are now open. See, friends, as I, as I wrap this up, here, here's what, hope, what, I, what I hope you'll take home. See, what Jesus wants to do in your life is to revolutionize your view of who he is. See, so many of us, we live this life thinking that Jesus is, is, is sort of this, uh, God, pick, this God who flies around and sprinkles pixie dust on us. And so where God I have this problem, God, I, I need you to answer this solution, and we expect Jesus to come around and just sprinkle a little dust on us, and he'll fix our issues, and he'll fix our problems. But Jesus is not that little floating tinker. What was her name? Tinkerbell that's flying around and Peter Pan. Jesus is so much bigger than that to us, and he's trying to reveal himself to us. He is so much more than that. We have to raise our expectations. Jesus cares so much about you and your life. Does he he want you to have the, the good things in life? Yes. Does he care about the small problems in our lives? Yes, he does. He cares about everything. The Bible says that he even knows the number of hairs on your head or the number of hairs that aren't on your head. Jesus knows everything, and Jesus cares so much about you. He wants to be intimately involved in your life, but he wants to flip your view of him. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your boyfriend. Jesus is not doing the little side little shot to you on the T-shirt. Jesus is not your jolly uncle who loves when you come to visit so he can give you a gift. Jesus is saying that I am the son of God. I am the one who came to be the stairway to heaven. I'm the one who came and lived a purpose life that you couldn't live. I am the one who went to the cross to die a death for you, to take your sin on my back. And when I did, I wiped your sin clean forever, past, present, and future forever. Ever. And then when he rose from the grave, he defeated death, saying to us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the one who takes us to God. This is what he means by saying that he is the stairway, to be the stairway between heaven and earth. And here's what this means. Let me just get real for a second. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of you tuning in online, We are living the roller coaster of expectation and disappointment. That's a reality of life. That is the human condition. And because of that roller coaster, we live in this world of of shame and guilt and feeling that we're not worthy. And then we set another expectation and we don't meet it, so it takes us even deeper down the road. And we get to the point where we just want to get off the roller coaster. We don't have any expectations at all. Or we get to the point where we think, God, you're not here for me. You're not going to do it, so I've got to do it on my own. And we tighten up our bootstraps and we try to climb the mountain. We try to climb the stairway. But what Jesus is wanting us to see by saying that he is the one that shows us greater things when we look for him and that he is the one that reveals God to us is he wants us to see that he has wiped all of that clean And you don't have to carry around any of those disappointments. You don't have to carry around any of that guilt and you don't have to carry around any of that shame because he has taken it all from you. And what he wants you to do is to stop seeing him in such a low expectation. Stop seeing him as the pixie angel, the little pixie tooth fairy and see him as the son of God who came to change your world and to change your life. And what he calls you to do is to trust and to turn to him. See, the reality is that this involves me realizing that my way doesn't work, that my way is not good enough. And I need to turn and realize that his way is. That's called repentance. Somebody say repentance. Recognizing that I, Jesus, I can't do it my way. Your way is right. And as we turn to him, we trust and believe that he is who he says he is that he has the power to to rescue and to save and redeem us. And you know what happens when you do this? The most beautiful thing happens. You begin to expect greater things. And Jesus promises that you begin to see greater things. So as I wrap up, here's my challenge for you this week. Lift your view. Change your expectations. See Jesus for who he truly is, someone who wants to revolutionize your life and your world. And as you do, you truly will begin to see greater things. Would you pray with me?